0: Mets fans. Welcome to episode 315 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation, New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you for joining us this week. We have a really fun show. Joining me on the show this week is Chris Donnelly. Chris is an author whose most recent book is called Doc Donnie, The Kid, and Billy Brawl, How the 1985 Mets and Yankees Fought for New York's Baseball Soul. It comes out this month from University of Nebraska Press, and it's all about the 85 Mets and Yankees. Um, As we discuss on the show, I was very young during this season, so I don't have first-hand memories of it, but Chris does a great job painting a picture of what it was like to be a baseball fan in 1985, and we have a really fun conversation about sort of how some of the things from this era still live on today in both Mets fans and Yankee fans. So, um, you can find me on Twitter at Brian needs app. You can find Chris on Twitter at C Donnelly 81. That's C D O N N E L L Y 81. You can find amazing Avenue on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at amazing Avenue. You can go to amazing for this and much, much more about the Mets as we prepare for the 2019 season. You can get this show from Apple podcasts from Stitcher from your podcatcher of choice. You can email the show, podcast at gmail.com. And, uh, yeah, I think that's all the plugs we have for this week. So enjoy my chat with Chris Donnelly, and we'll be back with another show next week. And so, until next time, let's go Mets. All right, I am joined on the show today by Chris Donnelly. He has a new book out called Doc Donnie the Kid and Billy Brawl, How the 1985 Mets and Yankees Fought for New York's Baseball Soul. Chris, how are you today? I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks for having me oh, on. My pleasure. Uh so a little bit of context here. I, I was three years old in nineteen eighty five, so I do not have active memories of the eighty five Mets or Yankees. But you know, growing up in northern New Jersey in the eighties, there's sort of that was the one time in, in my life that there was sort of this like active rivalry between the Mets and the Yankees where it didn't feel totally colossally lopsided with Yan- more Yankee fans than Mets fans, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Right. So, you know, you you told me before we started recording that you grew up a Yankee fan, but in your sort of memory of growing up, was it, um, was there sort of an active rivalry or did you perceive at the time that the Yankees were always sort of the, uh, the you know, the
1: preferred team in the area? Well, I, uh, I, I am one year older than you. So I have sort of a similar background there, um, except that I was the lone Yankee fan in my entire family. Everybody else was a Mets fan. So I think instinctively I rooted against whatever they (laughs) wanted to root for. (laughs) So, um, but I mean, I I do remember in the eighties, there was this, this sort of Met versus Yankee thing, even if I wasn't old enough to understand what it meant, in terms of the actual teams, I understood what it meant with the fan base. And it was, I mean, and the Mets were better. There's just no question about it. The, the Mets were the better team and they were the more exciting team. And, and you know, as we talk about, or as I talk about in the book, uh, the Yankees were essentially a disaster. And I mean, I started rooting for the Yankees when they were the worst team in baseball. My, my first Yankee memory is watching Andy Hawkins lose his no hitter. Uh, so it, it was the Mets town until really until the early nineties and until Steinbrenner got suspended and, and Gene Michael rebuilt a team and, and the collapse of the Mets happened sort of, I mean, it happened in pieces, but it kind of happened so fast. And uh, I don't know if the town, if New York and the area has really been a Mets town since 1990 maybe 1991 even though they weren't that good that year so yeah yeah I mean the Mets definitely ruled in the
0: 80s yeah it's sort of incredible you know I think that one of the things that we forget about because when you look back at the past it, it looks obvious but at the time you know in 84 let's say the Mets had started to get better 85 they have this incredible season which you write about 86 they win the World Series 87's a down year 88 they wind up back in the NLCS nobody thought 88 was the end of that run you know everybody the team looked built to be a contender for years to come and like you said it, it didn't happen just at the blink of an eye but the amount of talent the Mets had in 86 you would have expected them to be at least making the playoffs or real close to making the playoffs for the next five six years and that just didn't happen and you know, it's funny. It, it you would think that even during those fallow years, before the Yankees got good again in ninety four, ninety five, those early nineties years, the Yankees were you know, they weren't okay team. They weren't they weren't uh, you know the greatest team in baseball or anything like that. But it's amazing that even the Yankees getting just a little bit better put them over top of the Mets.
1: Yeah, and I think in some ways it was because the Yankees had been around so long and had been so successful that. Because there was this drought, which I think for most franchises would just simply be the way things were. But because it was the Yankees, it was this unimaginable drought of 14 years without going to the postseason, or 10 years without going to the postseason, and 15 years plus without winning a World Series. So I think when they started to become better again in 1992, and they started to improve um, I think people in the city, not Mets fans, obviously, but I think people in the city were looking forward to this sort of this rebirth of the team and ironically doing it the way that the Mets basically did it in the 80s by making some really shrewd trades and by letting their young talent develop. I mean, like everybody loves to see people come through the farm system And flourish with their team everybody loves that and and that's what the Mets did in the 80s and it's what the Yankees did in the 90s I mean they they kind of stole the Mets playbook to some degree Um, and and the thing about the Mets uh, is what made them so entertaining and so much fun was really kind of what ended up being their downfall in the end they just the players there was concern from Frank Cashin I mean nothing new to Mets fans but that their ways and their hard partying and just wasn't good in the long run and, and bit by bit players got traded. And as I said, it, it, it didn't happen overnight. These pieces were, people were slowly shipped away, even right after the 86 championship, but the Mets went from being really good to being really bad quickly. Uh, 1990, they were competitive, right? They made a run with the pirates up until the end of the year. And then 91 happened and they were bad for most of the rest of the decade until about 1997, 98.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, you know it's uh, it is a pretty fast turnaround. But anyway, but let's talk about the book for a second here. So um, let's be
1: more positive for Mets fans. Yeah, you know <laughs> I don't want to depress all of them listening right now.
0: <laughs> um, but no, so you know one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is that. You know, a lot of this stuff is is not necessarily news to anyone who follows either team with any you know with with any regularity. But the way that you compare the two teams, it, it's really sort of stunning how how well these two teams complement each other. Now, aside from just you know looking at the records and and just having a general sense of baseball history, what was it about these two teams that made you want to write this book, comparing and contrasting them? Was it just the, the novelty of both teams being good at the same time or sort of the, you know, the opposite trajectories. Was there one thing in particular, though, that led you to say, like, this is a book that's interesting that I want to write?
1: So I was writing uh, my first book, uh, which was about the 1995 Yankees and Mariners division series, and when I was writing that, I was researching both teams throughout the same time period, and y- you go back and you realize just how, chaotic the Yankees were in the eighties. And it just sort of dawned on me that uh, the Mets were sort of the complete opposite of that um, internal chaos, or at least in that, in terms of the Yankees internal chaos was such a downer for fans and for the team. Whereas with the Mets, the, the drinking, the fighting, the partying, I mean, the fans loved it. And to this day, still embrace it, right? You can't watch an 86 championship a documentary without mention of all that stuff. They embrace it and they love it. And uh, it just sort of fascinated me that here you have these two teams um, that throughout the 80s were going in the complete opposite direction. The Yankees were in the world, were in the ALCS in 80, and the World Series in 81. The Mets were uh, terrible. I mean, there's just no other way to describe them. They were just terrible in the early 80s. And then by the end of the 90s, everything had completely flipped. The Yankees were terrible, the Yankees were embarrassing, and the Mets, even though they didn't quite get to where people thought they were going to be, they were still the talk of the town, they were still a great team, they still had great personalities. And it just so happened that 1985, the middle of the decade, is where the two of them met uh, on their different paths, one going up and one going down. And I guess there was just something about the the symmetry of that that sort of intrigued me, not to mention just the – Season itself is so incredible. I mean, you'd be hard pressed to find another season like that, both in baseball and for these two teams, in terms of what happened. I just thought this would be uh, just thought it'd be an interesting topic, and people would want to read about it.
0: Yeah, it's—it uh, really is an incredible season for a number of reasons. I want to kind of point out like two or three things uh, to our listeners that maybe, if they weren't aware of it, you know, the sort of the things that happened in '85 that were that were so interesting. And the first one is, is very, very Yankee-centric, and that's that this was the fourth go-around for Billy Martin as manager of the mm-hmm. Yankees. And the Billy Martin saga seems almost impossible in 2019. <laughs> like, I cannot yeah. imagine any team, but especially the Yankees, giving a manager this many chances in doing all of your billy martin research what was the bit that stood out to you as the as the most chaotic element of his fourth go around with the team
1: well that would be the the weekend in baltimore towards the end of the season where uh billy had fights on consecutive nights and then as i note in the book there was really no mystery at that point to how things were going to go when Billy was manager because he'd done it everywhere Billy would come in with this bad team he would bring his exciting style of baseball hitting and running stealing doing sort of crazy things team would get better everything would be great and then there'd be the drinking and the fighting and then he would be fired and it happened essentially on every single team he managed from the time he began managing in baseball and the Yankee fans loved Billy Martin until about the third time he was manager because then everybody knew how it was going to go. And that was 1983. And and sure enough, he was fired 85 comes and they did not want him. I mean, Yankee fans were not happy that he uh, had been hired, but then he comes in, the Yankees get better under Billy. They make a run, but then as everybody could have predicted, he's in Baltimore and on a Friday night, he gets into a fight with a fan And Billy always thought that that was a setup from Steinbrenner. He thought that Steinbrenner had sent a guy in to to fight him so that George could fire him again. And then the next night he has the fight with Ed Whitson, which I go into uh, detail in the book for a couple pages. I mean, those two guys were just, Ed Whitson was a pitcher for for people who don't know. He was a pitcher uh, who had spent a good chunk of his career with the Padres Had signed a big contract with 485 to pitch with the Yankees. And his and Billy's personalities just, did not mesh Uh, Billy was a yeller and a second guesser and Whitson that's just he didn't thrive under that kind of atmosphere that wasn't his mentality and it showed in the way he pitched and uh, Whitson actually got into a fight with a fan at the bar um, a fan who I spoke to a fellow by the name of Albert Millis and Billy came over to break it up Uh, but Ed Whitson hated him so much that he started yelling at Billy, uh, and there were some magic words that you could say to Billy that would get him off, and Whitson calls him a motherfucker, and Billy turned around and punched him in the face. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then uh, the, the players are breaking up the fight, but they end up in the – this is in the bar in the hotel, the Cross Keys Inn in Baltimore, and the players are breaking up the fight. It ends up in the lobby. They're in the lobby, and Whitson kicks Billy right in the balls um sends him to the ground and then billy gets up and says now you've done it now i have to kill you i have to do it (laughs) they end up outside they end up right outside in front of the hotel and billy uh uh, whitston excuse me tackles billy into the ground i describe it as sort of like a bull going at the matador he just went at him threw billy into the ground broke his arm broke a couple ribs they break up the fight and Some players take Whitson around the back to the service elevator. Billy goes back in the hotel, tries to find out what room Whitson is in. They wouldn't tell him. So he gets in the elevator. In one of the worst cases of bad timing ever, the elevator door opens uh, for Billy, and walking by at that moment is Ed Whitson. And then they fight a fourth time in the hallway. (laughs) And all of this, by the way, happens in front of the press, in front of fans, In front of other players but at the time obviously there were no cell phones people didn't have cameras everywhere Uh, so something like that just wouldn't possibly happen today but uh it did happen they fought in four different places in one hotel and it was eventually billy's undoing because even though he didn't start the fight uh, it was an excuse to get rid of him for his erratic behavior and billy martin got into a lot of fights in his life a lot of very well documented fights Uh, He was tough, and he took out a lot of big guys, but the Ed Whitson fight with him is probably the most famous one. And what's,
0: to me, the craziest part about that is that, you know, this all goes down, and at the end of the season he loses his job, but then he's back three years later again.
1: Yeah, he, he... So Billy had been hired in 85, and they had said, we're hiring you for 85, Lou is going to be your bench coach, you're going to help train Lou to eventually be the manager. So they they essentially hired Billy to teach the guy who was going to take his job how to take his job. And it was a setup that was pretty much bound to, to fail, and eventually it did. And Lou takes over for 86 and 87. He can't take it anymore, so he moves to the front office in 88. They rehire Billy for a fifth time. And sure enough, Billy gets beat up at a strip joint in Texas, and as he's getting back to the hotel, the fire alarm goes off, and everybody is standing outside, including George Steinbrenner, and they see Billy basically fall out of the cab uh, with that, the shit beaten out of him. His ear almost came off, and that was, that was the fifth and final time. And Steinbrenner was going to hire Martin a sixth time. was He was going to he was gonna bring Billy back in 1990. Be the manager again, but Billy died in a car crash on Christmas Day in '89. Otherwise, there would have been a Billy Six.
0: It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about Steinbrenner a little bit now. I was going to go to a Mets topic now, but you mentioned Steinbrenner, so we got to talk about Steinbrenner. There are two things that sure. I wanted to sort of pick your brain about with Steinbrenner. The first is that, I mean, you know, in an era now where baseball owners basically are either reviled or or ignored steinbrenner you mm-hmm. know while, while he was certainly disliked by a, a big chunk of the mets fan base i mean the yankees fan base right you say at the end of the book that you know by the end of his tenure he was a really beloved um figure in the bronx a, a, and two yankee fans and um yep. i wanted to talk about sort of the the weird parallel between <laughs> Steinbrenner and the way that he treated people and sort of Donald Trump and the way he, I I don't want to get political with this, but it just seems to me there's a really interesting parallel there between the type of, of person that, that both appear to be when it comes to just being like having this ultimate sense of I'm the boss and that's the end of it, that, that 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 there's almost no consequences and no rules that apply that just, you know, Steinbrenner felt like it was his team and he could do whatever he wanted, whether that meant, you know, um, you know, making these insane mandatory workouts on days off or yep. hiring Billy Martin yep. five, almost six times or, you know, so sort of um, what what do you think? Do you think it, it, if he didn't go away, if he wasn't suspended? Or whatever, band whatever term we want to use for those years in the early '90s. Do you think that Steinbrenner would be remembered positively by Yankee fans now, or if he had managed to stick around the whole time, do you think that he would have remained sort of a a uh, a negative figure to Yankee fans?
1: I I think the best thing to ever happen to both Steinbrenner and the Yankees was his uh, banishment, and then what eventually became suspension from baseball because it, it i mean and most people know the story but it gave the Yankees time to actually develop the farm system and and Gene Michael will never get the amount of praise he truly deserves for what he did for the franchise for saving the talent the Bernie Williamses of the world the Mariano Rivera's and, and Buck Showalter deserves a lot of credit too for the mentality he brought um, and then when George came back he was There were still, I mean, look, there are still horror stories from from him of the 90s and the 2000s, but he was a little different, a little more mellow, a little more willing to listen to his baseball guys. And uh, it it was the best thing that ever happened to him because the Yankees uh, flourished. And obviously you have the dynasty of the late nineties. And part of, part of this too, as, as kind of odd and ridiculous as it might sound is Seinfeld. I mean, Seinfeld, really changed the way people thought about George Steinbeier because <laughs> it, it made him kind of human and and funny and the fact that they were allowed to keep the the character going for a couple of seasons I think showed that George had a sense of humor and didn't move to, to crush it or have it taken off even though he didn't at first really understand you know what it was all about uh, and because of that now uh, he's essentially a, a beloved figure I mean it was kind of driving me crazy this offseason when you you go to uh, look at yankee fan blogs and and twitter and people were saying well you know if only george was around we'd have nanny machado or we'd have bryce harper that might be true but i think people forget some of the really awful decisions that george
0: made you probably wouldn't have had 70s. aaron judge if you had a george <laughs> <Cilarante>. <laughs> right
1: yeah right no judge no severino i mean it's just and on and on and on and um it's it's really truly one of the remarkable uh changes in baseball history how people felt about him for an entire decade plus and how people felt about him in his later years while he was still alive and then after he died uh it's it's truly it's truly remarkable how that happened i mean w- winning helps that a lot a- absolutely absolutely but the you know the winning could not have happened with george there it just he just wasn't. Um, he thought he knew better than his baseball people, and uh, and it re- resulted in a ton of incredibly. And I go through this in the book. and, and the bad trades and free agent signings I talk about in the book are only to 1985. It doesn't include what happened towards the end of the decade with some of the more memorable bad trades, like Ken Phelps. Uh, but winning helped, but the winning also, I think, caused him to maybe. I don't want to relax isn't the right word, but he wasn't the George of the seventies and the eighties, the manic George. And also part of that is that the Mets weren't good anymore in the nineties. And he didn't necessarily have to worry about the Mets taking away Yankee fans or if they were going to win or not. So it was really just the perfect combination of Yankees winning Mets losing and, and George being a reoccurring character on the most popular show on TV. Okay. Round two, name something that's not boring
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What's incredible to me, as a Mets fan, and specifically as a Mets fan, you know, of my age, is that the Wilpons, until let's call it the early to mid 2000s, were, were were never really talked about. By I mean, obviously, you know diehard baseball fans of any team we will talk about ownership, but the Wilpons were sort of these, you know, more or less characters who kept to the background and didn't, didn't make too many waves. And then the Bernie Madoff thing happened and a couple other things happened. And all of a sudden the Wilpons became these villains to Mets fans everywhere. Not quite in the way Steinbrenner became a villain because, you know, I sort of the, the Wilpons, while they do stick their nose in a little bit too often, it's more their financial, um, you know, uh, miscues and, you know, their sort of general yeah. thriftiness when it comes to, you know, improving the major league product, things like that. Um, but I I was thinking about this when I was reading the book, you know, thinking, is there anything the Wilpons could do to change their long term prognosis? Like, you know, every offseason, the Mets will make one decent signing and a couple of fans say like oh this is the wilpons turning a corner and the corner is never ever turned and i started thinking about you know (laughs) what would it take for the wilpons to have that steinbrenner-esque transformation i don't think there's anything they could do 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 you kind of agree with that
1: I, i look some of it is just luck right or bad luck in this case i mean the mets were in the middle of this decade, the Mets were up and coming, right? And they made the world series and they had all these stud pitchers and, and injuries have happened and and player signings have not panned out the way they'd hoped. Uh, I mean, look, in theory that, that can change. Uh, Maybe not this season or next season, but over time that can change, but it's that happening is, is highly unlikely and not because, not because it's the Mets, but just because those things tend not to happen in baseball. I mean, look, the Yankees of the late nineties, those don't happen very often. Uh, You have to have the right sequence of events come together to result in, in what they did. But the fact that it did happen and the fact that the Yankees didn't really have much of a rebuilding period, right? I mean, it was a year or two at the most and, and all of their young prospects have essentially worked out and more or less state healthy that doesn't help the Wilpons either because Mets fans are always looking across town and saying well yeah of course the Yankees trade for Giancarlo Stan. of course they can do that okay Jeter's in cahoots with them this is just how it works with the, with the Yankees right uh, that doesn't that doesn't help the Wilpons at all um, so it, it's it's possible but more or less everything is going to have to come together for them just right for that to happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Uh, Let's talk about the Mets of 85 for a few minutes here. So obviously both you and I were too young to appreciate this in its full glory, but reading about Doc Gooden's 1985 season never ceases to amaze me. That guy was just on a totally different level than almost anything before or since. Is there a particular aspect or facet of Gooden's 85 season that stands out to you as more impressive
1: than the rest? Well, I would, there's a couple of things to keep in mind about his 85 season. One, he was just 20 years old. That's it. He wasn't even old enough to legally buy a drink in New York City. He was 20 years old and he had all this pressure on him. And look, we, we know eventually what happened to Doc in his career, right? But in 1985, I mean, everything was still good, and everything was great, and he was handling things well, and he was just this young, poised, incredibly smart pitcher. That's one thing uh, many people talk about when they talk about Dwight is he wasn't just a thrower. He didn't just go up there and throw hard and occasionally throw in a curveball. He was a smart pitcher who knew uh, how to mix things up. He knew what, you know, how to utilize counts in his favor. He, he knew how to get certain hitters out. Um, you don't see that in a lot of young pitchers or at least you didn't back then and the the number it's it's really hard to put into words just how incredible he was in 1985 I mean you can look at the numbers you can see 24 and 4 1.53 ERA you can see the shutouts the complete games the strikeouts all of that but it's it, it you really have to go back and actually watch his performances and how incredibly dominating he was and how difficult it was for hitters to face him. And if just a couple of right things had gone Doc's way, he could have probably won 30 games that year. I mean, I know you can probably look at anybody's season and go, well, if a couple of things happened this way or that way. He lost four games. In those four games, he gave up only nine runs, <laughs> so slightly over two in appearance, and the Mets only scored five runs in those four games. Uh, he his DRA after the first game of the year, which was the opening day game against the Cardinals, was four fifty. After in his next start, it went below two and it never went above two for the rest of the entire My year. Goodness. I mean that's that's incredible. It is absolutely incredible. Uh, he had I believe it was a thirty nine plus scoreless inning streak down the stretch. So this is after he's already pitched a ton of innings through a ton of complete games and he, he got better as the season went along, uh, it's again, as I said, it's really hard to, to write, put into words, just how incredible he was that year. And he he wins the. I mean, John Tudor was amazing that year for the Cardinals. He's amazing. He, in any other year, he would have been had one of the best pitching performances uh, in baseball history. And he wasn't even a thought in the Cy Young discussion because of how uh, how good Dwight was that year. And it's kind of writing about it was kind of sad because like I said, you know, what happened and you think about what might've been, but at the same time, look, we know what happened and we can always go back and appreciate how truly dominating he was in 85.
0: Yeah. It's, it's one of those seasons that, you know, almost deserves, and I'm sure there's been a book written about it, but it almost deserves its own book because it's just such an incredible season. Um, the thing I want to talk about, and, and, you know, I'm trying to think of how to put this. There were a lot of trades that get bandied around as sort of the most important in Mets history. The Keith Hernandez trade is one. You identify the Gary Carter yep. trade as possibly the most important one in Mets history. And Gary Carter, to me, is a really interesting character because in so many ways he is the antithesis of his Mets teammates. You know, here's a guy who was very yep. much a family man. Who was very much not a hard partier, who was um, concerned with appearances far more than it seemed like the Mets were. But on the other, but he's also this sort of glue that holds together the team. And his his appearance at the start of the '85 season is is really what you know what what catapults the Mets into into contention. If, if he wasn't there, the '85 season would have gone very very differently. What I wanted to ask you about Carter is, you know, as you're doing your research, did you find that a lot of people had sort of mellowed on Carter? Because I know, you know he was not always well-liked, as you as you identify, specifically by his exposed teammates. But when talking to people now, ha- have they sort of mellowed on Carter? Or did you get the sense that people still resent him for being Camera Carter and, you know, being the sort of rah-rah cheerleader that he tended to be?
1: Well, I... I wrote the book over the course of many years. I started writing it several years ago. And in fact, I, I interviewed Carter for this book uh, before he passed away. Um, and then I had to put it away for a couple of years and pick it back up. And by that time he, he had died. And so most people right, don't want to disparage somebody who has died. And, and whether that was the reason or not, I can't say, but I think most people had very fond things to say about Carter and his abilities. Um, But as you point out, I mean, that was not the case. I mean, they hated him in Montreal, his teammates. And that's, I mean, that's not, they didn't dislike him. They hated him. Uh, They thought he was a fake and they thought he just wanted to get in front of the cameras. And look, I think part of that was because Montreal wasn't the most pleasant place to be in the mid eighties as the team started to go downhill. Um, And Carter but so he learned French. He, he tried to become part of the community. He tried really hard to make things work. And I think there was a sense, at least in, in Carter's mind, that, well, if, if I'm miserable here, how can this guy possibly be happy here? He must be some kind of phony. right? And I think that's kind of where part of it is. And, and they still resented him even after the trade. They still mocked him. And then there's a story in the book about when the, the Mets first go to Montreal that year and Carter goes back for the first time that the Expos had pinned up an article in their clubhouse with Carter in it and they highlighted every time he said me or I and I think it's 19 times in the story right and they use that for motivation but the crazy thing is he goes to the Mets and those same qualities that made people hate him in Montreal uh, I mean they loved him in New York loved him I mean look some of his teammates didn't um, but by and large, they loved him. They loved the curtain call. They loved the enthusiasm. They they loved the uh, just the, the joy of playing the game of baseball. And uh, I call the Carter trade the greatest in Mets history, and I do think it is because I think there are other important trades. I think regardless of what you think of him during his Mets career, the George Foster trade was important because it showed folks that Frank Asham was really going to try and right this ship, and that he was willing to go out and get big players. Uh, the, the Hernandez trade, obviously, is, is a huge deal. But the Carter deal was different. This, was the, this wasn't the Mets taking advantage of uh, a situation where somebody was going to fall in their lap. This was them getting the best catcher in baseball and sending a message that, look, what happened in 1984, we don't consider a fluke. We know we're this good. And now we're getting this final piece, and we're going to win it. And that's really what it sent. And it had the additional added benefit of happening right after the Yankees traded for Ricky Henderson. And it basically took that away from the Yankees. And look, some people might tell you that that didn't mean anything or wasn't important or that the Mets didn't care about the Yankees or vice versa, but that was really important at that time. And it's something that must've driven George Steinbrenner crazy that after the Yankees get who someone who may have been arguably the best player in baseball, the Mets go out and get Carter make it and it was a huge deal when they traded for carter i think people understood what that meant and it changed as i say in the book it it changed the makeup of the national league east for the rest of the entire decade i mean the, the mets were the team now that people were going to have to contend with everybody else sort of had fits here and there the cardinals were good one year not good the next back and forth uh, but no, the Mets were were making a huge, huge statement with the Carter deal, and I think that's why it's the biggest trade in history in their history.
0: Yeah, I'll, maybe this is my age showing. I would argue that perhaps the Piazza trade is the biggest in team history, but for very similar reasons, not only down to the fact that that you're getting two, uh, you know, camera conscious catchers in these trades. Um, you know, I I think whereas the Carter trade was sort of the final piece not the final piece, but the biggest piece of that puzzle. The Piazza trade was the whole puzzle in some ways, you know. Um but obviously they're very different trades, but you know, uh, I definitely I definitely agree the Carter trade is right up there, sort of in the pantheon of important Mets
1: trades. Uh, I I think I think a strong argument I definitely think a strong argument made for the piazza deal. I think why I would put the Carter deal over it is I mean for because the Mets won the championship with Carter, right, that they never got with Piazza. Not that that's Piazza's fault. Right. But they won the championship. And also, I think the the issue with the Yankees and and really sort of re not reclaiming, because they never had the town before, but claiming New York as their own, which is kind of what they essentially did with that deal, that's why I would put it over the top. That's all fair.
0: That that all makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. Um, so sort of the last thing I want to talk to you about before I let you go today is... You know, as I'm reading this book, and I find it fascinating that you're a Yankee fan after having read the book, because I I think that you accurately portray how much more fun the Mets were in 85 than the Yankees in almost every way. Like, it, it seems to me like being at Shea Stadium on an August night in 1985 must have been a raucous, you know, just really fun experience. Whereas I think even when the Yankees were going well, Yankee stadium probably be because of the Billy Martin, you know, horse shit and because of sort of the Steinbrenner cloud that's over the team. It seems to me like the Yankees, Yankee stadium would have been a much less uh, or it it would have been just generally less fun to be a Yankee fan in 85 than a Met fan in 85, even though, you know, both teams are sort of doing, Very similarly in the in the statistic in the standings rather and all that you know it just seems like it would be much much more fun to be a a Mets fan at that time, and I think that in some ways you know while the Yankees certainly got their mojo back you know with, with the city and with the fans, in a way there is still that sort of buttoned up Yankee mentality whether it's you know the facial hair rule or the you know, just the way the sort of Yankee stadium feels versus how city field feels now, you know, there's just a different vibe to being a Yankee fan and to being a Met fan. And so as somebody who's coming at it from the Yankee side of the equation, how does that, how how does, how does the tone of the Yankees as an organization affect your fandom? If that makes sense.
1: (laughs) No, it it does. And uh, it's, it's an interesting point because really you read the book and you wonder how anybody growing up in that period could be a Yankee fan. I mean, they were, even when they were being successful, there was this feeling of, well, this is what it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be winning, but we have to deal with all this added bullshit coming from Steinbrenner and Billy Martin. And there's always something every day. Um, And to to your point, it's look uh, Yankee fans take pride in the fact that Derek Jeter never got in any trouble. Uh, they love Aaron. And I mean, in addition to obviously their abilities on the field, but they love the fact that Aaron judge just seems like a guy who's going to be a Jeter type, go about his business, not, not make any waves. Mets fans seem to like the opposite of that, <laughs> or, or at least they like players who are, you know, ha- at least appear to be having a good time. Uh, and that was certainly, a, a, the case in the eighties, right. With the scum bunch and, and the partying and, um, and, yeah, there's definitely a corporate feel to the Yankees uh, and to being a fan. Um, but at the end of the day, winning usually cures everything. <laughs> so I, I think it, I think as a Yankee fan, I'd rather us win boring uh, than lose you know, exciting. Sure. Um, so that helps, right? The dynasty helps. The winning helps. And I think other people would say, as a Yankee fan, you get to enjoy the fact that your team spends on players, although that isn't always the case. But you always got the sense, at least post-suspension, that Steinbrenner was going to do whatever he had to do in a good way to make the team win, to get them what they needed. In the 80s, he probably felt the opposite, that he was going to do what he can to screw it up. When he came back you felt the opposite and that felt good it felt good knowing that your ownership was going to be that supportive um and i don't think mets fans have ever had that feeling and i don't i don't want to speak for them but i don't know if they've ever had that feeling where ownership yeah ownership is going to make this work um especially to the point you made about the ponds. I, I think they sometimes feel just the opposite they're going to figure out how to screw this up yeah. Uh, so I think that in part makes being a Yankee fan easier. That's very fair. Um,
0: yeah, so I, I actually, I, I have to confess here. I have not been to new Yankee stadium yet. Um, I have, I had spent m- okay. many, many days at old Yankee <laughs> stadium. My dad's company growing up had Yankee season tickets. I was actually at that, uh, epic extra inning Mariners Yankees, uh, playoff game, uh, Ah. Ninety-five, yeah, and uh, you went to many many Yankee games, but I remember as a kid feeling like, and this is overstating it, and I was a Mets fan in Yankee Stadium, so it's it's a very different vibe too. But I almost felt like I was I was supposed to cheer, but I couldn't cheer too much at Yankee Stadium, whereas I felt like (laughs) going to Shea as a kid, it was like anything went. Chase stadium you know but i also think that you know i have a lot of friends that are yankee fans and i have a lot of friends that are met fans and i think that you're starting to see the ice melt a little bit between the two i don't think you get the fervent haters of the other team anymore that we're kind of reaching a a detente here between and realizing that we don't have to root against one for the other and i as a met fan Nothing would make me happier than if 2019 was like 1985 in a way where both teams were good. And so, you know, on a day off, you could switch to the other channel and enjoy the other team just as much. You know, that would be a great thing for baseball fans in New
1: York. Yeah, and I think that's fair. And I think I think you're correct in that it's not as um, crazy – or intense, at least among fans, that it used to be. I think part of that is because the personalities have changed so much. George isn't around anymore. I You don't get the feeling that the Yankees or Mets particularly care what the other team does, which was not the case in the 80s or 90s. Right. Um, and I, I think th- there aren't the same kind of personalities on either team that there used to be. Uh, and I also think, to a degree, social media and the the immediate Availability of information has tempered that a little bit too, because as a Yankee fan, you can see on Twitter that Noah Syndergaard's a funny guy, right? Makes him likable, right? Hard, hard to hate a guy who's funny like that. Uh, So I think that has sort of melted away some of the uh, some of the intensity. That said, if we did end up with a Subway Series this year, I'm sure for one week or uh, ten days that would all return absolutely (laughs) uh you know with a vengeance um and then we'd be okay